Thank you, Mark. Thank you, everyone. Nice to see you all. Usually I don't get time to say hello, so I'm going to say hello to you each of you this morning. Nice to see you. Uh, <laughs> good. We did sing about the humble king who humbly came. And uh, so as, as I talk through, it'll be a little bit about, uh, yeah, how the humbly, humble king came. Today is the first, second, sorry, second day in Advent, and it's when some traditional churches would especially focus on Bethlehem and faith, and how those two together, well, that's another story, which you'll hear in a moment. Um, so the term Advent comes from two Latin words, basically, means the arrival, and in the church context, that's used for the arrival of Jesus, God in human form, to be our saviour and rescue mankind from the consequences of the errors of our ways. But today also is the last Sunday before the general election. Wait for it. To elect the advent of a new parliament. And news media have been full of hopeful men and women saying they and their party, what they would do and what they promised to do if they were elected to serve as members of parliament. And there are two words that stand out from all the others that we've heard over the news media for the last month. And they are, number one? Brexit, Brexit yeah. Well, number two? One? Uh, no, I was thinking of something different. Something about lack of? <laughs> lack, lack of honesty. Honesty, lack of trust. Yes, so trust is the word. Of course, it's trust, isn't it? And and without actually using the word saviour, the party leaders are basically. To, I'm, don't worry, I'm not going to give you any tips on how to vote. Uh, without using the word saviour, the party leaders are basically telling us that they are the one who can become the saviour of the UK, rescue the country from the folly of their predecessors in Parliament, and save us either from the evils of Europe or from the evils of Brexit. And, and this sounds a bit like Clive James, uh, the broadcaster who died a couple of weeks ago, they then offer us, offer us a carrot of varying sizes of incredulity, packed with a confetti of unlikely promises to entice us, entice us to vote them into office. Incredible promises that they want us to believe. But can we trust their promises? Probably not, and certainly not if we feel we cannot trust the person who is making the promises. Behind the promises, there is a person. In John's Gospel, in chapter 1, he writes how Jesus was full of grace and truth. And truth is attached to trust, isn't it? We Trust and truth, almost the same things, in that we only trust the truth, or at least we should. So, where are we up to? We got something? Yeah, yes, good. Uh, Luke chapter 4 says Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit following his temptation in the desert. And it says Jesus went to Nazareth where he was brought up and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. And this, friends, is Jesus' manifesto for us. 
The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, he said, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And he finished up by saying, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. But the people who heard it didn't agree with it, did, did they? They didn't like his manifesto. That Somehow it, they couldn't work with it. Isn't this Joseph's son, they said? And they became furiously angry. Very different from the manifestos we've heard. This is a manifesto in whom we can trust because we can trust in the God behind it. And maybe we ask, and this is the only bit which is political perhaps, maybe we need to ask ourselves how we can vote on Thursday, how we can do it to help contribute to God's promise to protect the vulnerable, the outcast, the homeless, the poor, the widows and orphans, and the aliens and strangers in our midst. Psalm 146 has a very similar passage, but it starts... uh, a bit like this. Do not put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. Now, princes are people who are just near to the king or the queen. And um, they're people you, you could suck up to in order to try and get a bit of a voice and get an ear to the person in control and in power. Do not put your trust in princes, says the psalmist, in human beings who cannot save. Instead, Blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. He remains faithful forever. Our politicians won't be faithful forever, but God will. He upholds the cause of the oppressed, and here's the list again, and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. They're the humble people we sang about as well. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. The Lord reigns forever. And this is a God who deeply cares for his people, who knows their every need, their every pain, and he remains faithful to his creation, and he keeps his manifesto promises. We can trust him. So that's the end of politics. Sort of. Anyway, yep. The intricate way in which God gets involved in every detail of the Christmas story, thinking of Christmas now, uh, shows us how he can be intricately involved in our lives too, as a loving Heavenly Father. And we can rely on him for our daily life, just as much as Mary and Joseph did in the Christmas stories. So, we'll speak about Bethlehem, so we'll speak about Bethlehem, and here it is in all its glory, and a Christmas card which came yesterday in the post. Uh, I'll say about it in a moment. Bethlehem was chosen by God to be the place where Jesus was born, and it's situated in the hill country of Judea, and we'll show a map later on, about six and a half miles south of Jerusalem. It has a significant history in the Old Testament. It doesn't just come up Uh, when Jesus was born. And it was being so-called the city of David, the place where Samuel lined up the sons of Jesse, you remember the Old Testament story, and eventually anointed the youngest David to be 
the next king of Israel. But before this, back in Genesis 35, it was the place where Rachel was buried. Rachel, I know that name from somewhere, what is it? Rachel was the daughter of Laban, the best-loved wife of Jacob, the mother of Joseph and Benjamin, for those that just temporarily forgot. That Rachel name comes up again, and I'll just mention it a bit later on, but I'll say the verse here, because if you remember when Herod uh, decreed that all the baby boys should be killed, Matthew uses a verse about this, which he gets from Jeremiah 31. It says, A voice is heard in Ramah, which is a place very near to Bethlehem, part of the area, weeping and great mourning, Rachel, weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. We've had that verse, and we think, why does it mention Rachel in that? Rachel, because Rachel was tied in with Bethlehem. Almost the raison d'etre of Bethlehem for many years was because it was the, the, the tomb place of Rachel. So the picture on the Christmas card shows Bethlehem, but it shows it complete with mosques and minarets, and a stable, maybe uh, a space rocket in the background, <laughs> or is it the, the gherkin? Uh, what in some ways is even more shocking uh, to me, uh, because I've, what I'll talk about in a moment, is that um, it comes from what was the Bible Land Society. So it, this is a charity which is uh, collecting money to help people in Bethlehem. But Bethlehem today does have minarets and uh, mosques. I'm sure I haven't been there, but I bet it has. And so maybe the charity has done it just to make people uh, who are trying to help uh, feel a bit more at home. We can't always see, uh, believe what we see is accurate. Now the prophet Micah wrote about this Bethlehem. He said, You Bethlehem Ephrathra, now, there were two Bethlehems. There was actually a Bethlehem very near to Nazareth. And then this is a different one, and the Ephrathah bit links it with the Rachel tomb. So that's why we know it's this Bethlehem. Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they, the flock, will live securely, for, the, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be our peace. So here's Micah writing about Bethlehem, at that time not knowing really why he was writing it, but the Spirit was helping to do it, helping him to prove that this baby to be born in Bethlehem was his Holy One. Now, when we think about the Christmas story, there's lots of, uh, of traditions that attach to it. Uh, we might call them, in, in modern parlance, alternative facts. Yeah? Because, you know, we, it's hard for us always to know what's true without going back to Scripture to see about it. And things we might think about, well, we think of a manger. Oh, pictures, forget that. Uh, the manger, the donkey ride at night, three wise men bringing gifts 
shepherds in the field at night, in the bleak midwinter, a baby born in a stable, an inn, and no room at the inn, etc. But which of these are traditions and which of them are true? If we were to get onto the carols, the list is even worse in some ways. <laughs> with a holly in the ivy and the partridge in the pear tree and things. Think, what, what's this to do with, with Jesus? But we also need to consider whether a faithful, loving, caring God would leave anything to chance when planning for our Saviour to be Jesus to be born. And, of course, he announced it well ahead of time through the prophets of old. And to help us answer these questions, we'll look at the Bible text a bit, and we'll also look at the social culture of Bethlehem at this time of Jesus' birth. And at this time, I want to just say thank you to the author of this book. Now, if you have a sister, and you have a birthday, and you don't know what... Uh, your sister doesn't know what you'd like for your birthday because you have everything, get her to get you this book because that's where I got it from. And a few years, I didn't read it, but when I read it, wow, it was dynamite stuff. So there's the picture of it. Jesus, the Middle Eastern eyes, cultural studies in the gospel. It's just the background to some of the things that Jesus is talking about in the parables and in the stories he told and also in the nativity story. So we look at the Bible passage about, here we are, yes, uh, about the times of the birth of Jesus. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. Now, Historians thought the Bible uh, story in Luke was wrong because Quirinius became governor in 8 AD. <gasps> Horror of horrors! He got it wrong. But later on, historians then found that Quirinius was governor of Syria for a little while before he came governor in a big way. And so in that little time, well, Quirinius was, if you like, acting governor, that was when the census was. Luke was right, and people have now found it was right. He, was, he, he says he tried to be as accurate as possible, uh, and we have to believe what he said. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the town of David because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. The passages, of course, then go on to, about the story of the shepherds and the wise men, and those happened in Bethlehem as well, but I haven't got time for those. And also, uh, of course, this flight escaped to Egypt, uh, for a while, while Herod was so angry with everyone and wanted to kill the babies. So Jesus grew up for a bit in Egypt. He was an immigrant, wasn't he? And he probably uh, learnt to walk and to talk. Uh, I was going to say potty chain, but maybe that's a bit too close. Uh, in Egypt. Now, there are three ways of looking at any story that we hear. One way is to look at, and it's just a very, very simple story. And so if I said, 
The simplest way of saying the, the Christmas story is a couple were visiting Bethlehem and they had a baby while they were there. Full stop. It's a story, you have a little bit of narrative, but really it's meaningless, isn't it? If you add a bit of more flesh to that, then the, you could say a couple called Mary and Joseph, why shouldn't it be Joseph and Mary? Um, they went to Bethlehem and they had a baby while they were there and they called him Jesus. So it fleshes out. But in order to show the story even more, you need the emotions in it. And when we read through the story, a lot of Bible stories actually, there's lots of emotion there. It's hidden and the words just are simple. But actually, it's the emotion bit, which is where the Spirit speaks to us about what was said. Uh, So read it with extra uh, dimension, if you like, and you will get more and more out of it. I I can't put a lot of that in this morning, uh, although I'll put a tiny bit about Joseph in. Um, Bethlehem, at the time of Jesus' birth, was made up of a collection of simple, flat-roofed family houses, and they looked something like this. And these pictures come from this book. Here is a house. It doesn't look much like it, but it is a long rectangular uh, house. Uh, and the house was one room with a few stairs down at one end, and there was a lower bit with one door. And the animals were in the bottom bit, which was the stable, and the top bit was the house. All right, that was the simple pattern of house. Now, there is a story in Judges about a man called Jephthah who had a house like this. Uh, and he uh, vowed to God that he was going to sacrifice an animal, the first one that came out of the door. But unfortunately, his daughter came out first, before the animals, um, in the morning when they, they let them out. Uh, and so uh, that picture of the house goes right on until into the 20th century. Mid-20th century, people were still living in houses like this in one room. Uh, and sometimes in Nepal, the people there, when we lived there, they were living in one room too. Where we got to. And uh, knowing that there's a single room in the house, that helps us to explain a lot of Bible stories or uh, little things. You think about uh, when Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount said about, you don't just, you don't have a light in your house and then cover it with a, a, a bushel basket. You put it on a lampstand and the light shines out to the whole house. If the house had different rooms, how does it get into those other rooms? Uh, it has to be all in one room. But the design of the house looks a bit clearer if we look at the next picture, because this is the plan of it. Here's the family living room where everyone lived, the steps down to the stable bit. See where the mangers are. And this is why we find it confusing in the Christmas story. The mangers were actually in the living room, and the cows would look, put their head over and get the fodder. They kept it clean in these bits, just little basins in the floor. Uh, so that they didn't tread on them because fodder was rare uh, and expensive and whatever. So that's what the house that uh, Jesus would have gone to looks like. But you say, ah, but the Bible says there was no room for them in the inn. Let's have another picture. 
In the story, in the text we read just now, it said about no room in the guest house. The guest house on the right was some of the houses had an extra room built where guests could stay, uh, where they would entertain. And so these bigger houses uh, would have this sort of place. And if we think about it, uh, the Last Supper was in a guest room, a catal- what did I say? Catalima guest room. Uh, so they went in there for that. Uh, and when the Holy Spirit came, and they were all meeting together in a catalima. Sometimes they were beside the house, sometimes they were on the roof of the house. Uh, an extra room. And Elisha spent some time uh, in one of these little rooms on the roof of a widow's house. So then that helps us to understand how the newborn Jesus could be safely laid in a manger without being trodden on by the cattle or eaten by the cattle or whatever. Uh, Not a cattle stool, but in the room in the house. When we think of a hotel or an inn, we think of lots of rooms, don't we? Lots of guest rooms. And there was that sort of inn in Bible times. And if we think about the story of the Good Samaritan, yeah? Uh, the Good Samaritan took the, the injured man he found and he took them uh, to a, an inn and the name of that sort of inn is a pandokeion, which the name means receiving all. But the inn word used in the Christmas story is Catalina, like the uh, attached to the house. So where the presence of the mangers were, because we do know that he was laid in a manger, it's pretty clear that Jesus was actually born in the house itself and not the guest room nor the stable. Think back to the Christmas card. Where was Jesus born? In the stable. And I just noticed this morning, (laughs) it is Jesus in the manger in the stable (laughs) with with shepherds and kings as well. Sorry, that's why I had that on there. Yeah, you you can't believe everything you see, but of course we're not supposed to, and of course we don't know the social context either. So just reading this little picture, it's pretty certain that he was born in the house uh, and laid in the manger. I said we'd look at the social culture of Bethlehem too, and uh, here are a few points just to help us understand the context of the Christmas story, because it happened in real life. This is history. And it happened buried in history. And the history bit here is that things were different from how they are now. We'll strip away some of the more of the myths surrounding the story. And firstly, in the Middle East, family connections are really, really important. And so all that Joseph had to do was to go to Bethlehem and say, I am Joseph, son of Heli, son of Mathat, son of Levi, etc., through the, uh, uh, his list of his grand uh, ancestors, and immediately he would have been welcomed into any family home in that town. Yeah? If we tried it in Wallington, it certainly wouldn't work. <laughs> Secondly, because Joseph was from the royal line, tracing his line back to King David, he would have been given special honour in the arrival in the so-called City of David. It was only a town, but they called it the City of David. It's almost a nickname for it because they were so proud of their city because David had come from there. Yeah, so they'd given a special honour. And then then this next thing, um, 
is that in the culture, almost every culture in the world, a woman who's about to give birth is given special attention. Simple rural communities all over the world will assist one of their own women in childbirth, irrespective of circumstances. And would Bethlehem have been any different? The community would have rallied round, oh, we've got these visitors, these rural visitors with us, and helped uh, uh, Joseph to find suitable accommodation for Mary at this time. And they would have provided the care she needed. To turn away a descendant of David would have brought unspeakable shame on the entire village. So they wouldn't have done it. Fourthly, Mary actually had relatives in a nearby village. Her cousin Elizabeth and Zachariah lived in the hill country of Judea. Judea, And months earlier, Mary had welcomed, been welcomed there. Do you remember Mary went off to see Elizabeth, her cousin? Uh, cousin. If Joseph had been unable to find suitable accommodation in Bethlehem, what would he have done? He would have walked up the road a couple of miles uh, and gone to Elizabeth's house where they would have been welcomed in. And fifthly, it's actually very clear that Joseph had adequate time to make adequate arrangements. Uh, Luke 2 verse 4 says that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered, quoting King James Version. This is the very different view from what we see in nativity plays of little children with uh, tea towels on their heads. Uh, where it all seems to be a rush and the very night, just as they were about to get there and there was no room at the inn, suddenly Jesus was born. No, it might add up to the tensions in the nativity play, but it isn't accurate. Luke specifically says that the guest room, the Catalima, was fully occupied. So Mary and Joseph were graciously welcomed into the family house itself. The family room would have been prepared. I'm sure all the men would have been cleared out and all the women, the village midwife and whoever would have been there and would have assisted in their birth. And there's no Bible story uh, mention of Joseph and Mary hurrying to get to Bethlehem in time for the birth. There was time enough to arrange for an orderly birth. If we look on a map for a moment. Yeah, so it's a bit smaller. I had trouble finding a proper, a good enough map. Um, so Nazareth is at the top of the dotted line. And there were two different routes that Mary and Joseph could have gone. There was the short route, which was over the black line, dotted line bit. But if you notice, that goes up into the hill country, because the brown is representing hills and mountains that were about as big as the Scottish mountains. So quite high. And uh, so that would have been about 75, 80 miles. But if they went around the green route uh, through the valley of the River Jordan, it would have been 90-plus miles, but would have been uh, much easier on Mary. There's no mention of Mary riding a donkey, and I think if she did ride a donkey when she was about to produce, maybe the baby would have come sooner, and she wouldn't have got to Bethlehem in time. So walking that amount is about 10 days so it's quite a long journey, uh, and they couldn't rush it. But then you ask the question, why did Joseph take Mary with him when he had to go and register it for the census? Wouldn't it have been easier and perhaps quicker to simply leave her at home in Nazareth? 
And there are probably two answers to this question. One, the obvious one, is that then, if he was born in Nazareth, he wouldn't have been born in Bethlehem. And Micah, the bit we read, uh, said he was going to be born in, um, in Bethlehem. Micah's prophecy wouldn't have been fulfilled if he'd been born anywhere else, even if he'd born nearby in Elizabeth's house. The obvious, question, not so obvious answer is that Joseph brought Mary along with him for her own safety because he wanted to protect her from a great danger. Now in Deuteronomy 22, it says if a young woman gets pregnant, then she should be stoned. And whoever was found with her should be stoned too. So that was really important that God had to intervene in that story in some way because anyone in Nazareth could have done that, could have done the stoning. There wasn't uh, lawyers and judges in those days. Anyone could have taken up a stone and killed Mary because she was pregnant. And Joseph could have done it too. And we read in Scripture that Joseph was a righteous man. If you like, he, he was a just person. He could have fulfilled what the law in Deuteronomy had said. But God had to sort him out. And uh, an angel came to him, didn't it? Uh, and uh, the angel said, don't be frightened of taking Mary as your wife, because what's in her is of the Lord. And... Uh, yeah... But it also says that as Joseph was thinking through these things, that he considered this, and then the angel came in a dream. The consideration came first. But that word consideration has two meanings. One is how we would use it. Oh, we considered it. We thought very nicely. We sat very nicely, gently, and had a nice thought. Uh, And from our thinking, we came out with this answer. But that word also means they were fuming about it. They were, he was in rage about it. God, how can you be so... Uh, to get Mary pregnant. I want to marry her and she's pregnant. What do we do about it? And so he was really angry about it as he considered things. And that word, describing that he considered these things, only appears two other times in the Bible. And we've mentioned them both this morning. One was in the synagogue when Jesus read his manifesto uh, and the people around him were starting to fume and tried to kill him and drove him out, the, out of the village. Um, and the other one was Herod. Herod, who tried to kill the baby boys when the, he heard the message that Jesus had been born in Bethlehem and not in the royal palace of Herod. He was equally fuming and rage and he then tried to kill the baby boys. Uh, the only other, only other two mentions where people are furious and that's how furious Joseph was and that's why God had to send an angel to him he needed an angel to sort him out so that's why he took maybe took Mary with him to Bethlehem because he wanted to keep her safe well I've gone quite on quite a bit about Bethlehem, uh, but I hope it helps understand a bit more about the background of the Christmas story. It was historical, like I said, and it happened, and the little details are the ones that bring it alive, and hopefully what I've pulled out of 
a bit of this book. Uh, it helped make it alive for us. So I've got various notes to myself. <laughs> yes, I know. Um, yes, uh, there are uh, there's different sorts of justice in the Bible. Well, you know that an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, you know, if you do one thing, to, the justice is to get it back again. Uh, and uh, that's the sort of justice, or you pay your taxes, so therefore I pay my taxes. Uh, this quid pro quo sort of justice that could have been uh, for Joseph and Mary. There's also the justice that if you sin, you shall die, which is in Genesis uh, 1 and 2. Uh, God said to Adam and Eve, because you have sinned, therefore you shall die. There's that sort of justice that that's when sin came into the world and that's where justice started. And then there's also the justice which comes up and if you were here about three weeks ago, I mentioned it then, but uh, the same verse. In, in Isaiah 43, where he talks about uh, being a, a bruised reed, a bent reed that won't be crushed, or, or a wick of a little lamp that uh, won't be quenched, won't be uh, dropped out. That picture of God being kind and helpful to us as reeds and as little lamps... Um, in that verse, he says, in faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. Uh, and he, he, just because these people, just because Mary and Joseph were low-down people, just because they were humble and in a humble house, doesn't mean that um, they couldn't have justice where God had compassion and forgiveness for people. And he had compassion and forgiveness, if you like, for Joseph, who was thinking one way. He helped Joseph to understand there was more to life than following the rules because God's love reached to them forever. I haven't explained that very well, but I, I hope you will understand that behind this, there is a loving Heavenly Father who loves us. So, our trust is based on God's unchanging faithfulness. Don't put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. Blessed are those whose hope is in the Lord their God, because he remains faithful forever. Now, just in the last couple of bits, um, if we put ourselves in the Christmas story a bit, uh, sometimes we measure ourselves by what goes on in Scripture, and maybe we have, we're feeling angry at God, a bit like Joseph did. Our plans for a happy ever after maybe seem to have been thwarted. Or maybe, like Mary, you definitely feel need of God's protection for your life, or your health, or your mind. You feel others have left you behind in your personal Nazareth while they go off to the bright lights of their Bethlehem the place of safety and provision, leaving you alone and uncared for. Or maybe you feel that your life journey has become unclear. You've set out on a spiritual trip, but the road ahead has become foggy, and you're not sure where your personal Bethlehem will end up being. 
Or maybe you feel you're a bit like that light on the lampstand, that your life is not shining through the whole house as you would like it to. Or that the wick in the little lamp needs trimming, or the oil needs topping up. Or maybe you just wish an angel would come and help sort you all out. Maybe not. Now, last week, this is uh, in, finally finishing. Uh, last week, we sang a, a song which no one except Karen and I knew. I do not know what lies ahead the way I cannot see. But now you know why we did it, why we sang it. It wasn't for last week. Well, it was, but in the election, but it was for this week as well. Yet one stands near to be my guide. He'll show the way to me, just as he did for Mary and Joseph. I know who holds the future, and he'll guide me with his hand. With God's God, things don't just happen. Everything by him is planned. So as I face tomorrow, with its problems large and small, I'll trust the God of miracles, give to him my all. I do not know the course ahead, what joys and griefs are there. What one is near, who fully knows, I'll trust his loving care. And as the week unfolds and the results of the general elections come out, and maybe we feel happy, maybe we'll feel sad, but we can always look with God and say, he is always with us, he will always hold us in his hands. So do your duty on Thursday and see what happens on Friday.